The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, August 30th, 2020 by Vicar Evan Aerosmith on the basis of Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. I'm going to make an assumption here because I'm not a parent but I assume that most parents want to pass things along to their kids. Not just money or the house or the car or the jewelry, but morals, lessons, little tidbits of wisdom that you've gathered up in all your years because you want your sons and daughters to have the necessary mental equipment to thrive as adults. When you find out, however, that your time on this earth is a little bit shorter than you thought it was going to be, I imagine that process becomes a little more accelerated. You want to get those things written down or recorded, or you want to at least start the process of passing along that information. You don't know how much time you have left. Jesus, on the other hand, knew very well what kind of timetable he was on. And he knew he had some information he wanted to pass along as well. He had pulled out of Galilee with his disciples to rest and regroup for just a brief moment, but they were about to turn around and make their way to Jerusalem for the last time. Things were going to get ugly. Souls would be shaken and faith would be tested. And before those dark days rolled around, Jesus wanted to make a few things perfectly clear to his disciples. Beginning with the most important question, who is Jesus. 2,000 years later, I don't think the world is any less confused about that identity of Jesus than it was then. From the high minds of academia to the internet theologian to the opinionated unbeliever and right down to our own hearts, the image of Jesus has been distorted and cracked by doubts. And yet you're here to receive that inheritance of wisdom which Jesus passed on to his disciples in this text. And he wants you to know these things too, because first of all, it's the basis of our faith. He tells us that the church is founded on this confession. But also because your identity is inextricably wrapped up in Jesus' identity. Because if we fail to see who Jesus is, we fail to see who we are. But if Jesus is who he says he is, and if we say that Jesus is who he says he is, then we are who Jesus says we are. Now, Jesus had a way of avoiding saying anything directly until the time was right. Because if he could force you to think about what he was saying, and by that thinking bring you to the conclusion he wanted you to come to, then his point would be that much more embedded in your mind. And even with his disciples, he uses these methods. And his first question, because he starts with a question, is simple. What are people saying about me? Or more accurately, who do people say that I am? It's a low-pressure question. I mean, of course, there's one right answer and a whole lot of wrong ones. But in this question, Jesus is asking for all the answers. So in in this sense, even the wrong answers are included under the umbrella of the right one. And so the answers come pouring out. They say, you're Elijah. They say, you're John the Baptist. They say, you're Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Jonah, on down the line until they run out of prophets. And there's a reason that these people are giving these responses. By the time Jesus rolled around, his people were suffering from 
terminal nostalgia, I guess you'd say. That longing for the days when Israel and her children were bigger and better than they were at that moment, at least. And so if there was anything to this Jesus guy, anything good, anything powerful, it was almost certainly because he was the hero of some bygone era. The rumor mill had produced a Jesus who was indeed great, but not uniquely Jesus. And then the others, who the disciples don't mention here, there were probably others who thought that Jesus was a great new teacher, a new rabbi for a new age, a powerful voice for the oppressed, nothing less, but also nothing more. If you were at the bottom of the socioeconomic food chain in ancient Judea, you were sitting underneath uh, the Roman Empire, puppet governors, the rich, the religious elite, and really anybody who had a slightly better reputation than you. So to see this guy roll around who was like you, who identified with you, and yet changed the entire flow of respect and social standing in your world, well, that would just change everything. And if this guy was going up the ladder, then maybe you could follow him. The problems that plagued Jesus' question back then are the same things that make it tricky to handle today. Very rarely will you find somebody who says that Jesus was anything less than a great man or a great teacher. For all the ways that his name is abused and all the ways that his, his image is thrown around and disrespected, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody actively and purposely maligning the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And some would say that that basic respect is all a person is owed. We can't expect the unbelieving world to go much further than that because, well, if they thought anything more of Jesus, they'd probably be believers. That said, we can't be willing to sit down and, and shake hands with a confused world when they casually throw Jesus up onto their personal Mount Rushmore of righteous dudes because he's more than that, and we know it. Maybe that's not your problem. Maybe that's not the issue you deal with. But there's another trap that Christians fall into far more often. The trap where you take Jesus as he says he is, and then you try and cram that Jesus into a mold of your own making. It's become fair game in today's world to try and shoehorn Jesus into any and every social issue that arises, even if that means simplifying him even if simplifying him means distorting him. And, and the, this problem becomes all the more personal when it comes to our own convictions. You have to ask the question of whether Jesus is living by your ideals or you're living by his. Is your Jesus a good American? Does he vote the way that you would vote? Is his worship style chill or somber or upbeat? Does he take your side in every argument that you have? These are the kind of things that we're dealing with, but ultimately it boils down to the question that you have to answer. Should Jesus resemble you? Or should you resemble Jesus? Jesus was a complex guy. He was God. He was man. He was certainly the ideal person, but he's going to be idealized on his own terms. And so when we try to idealize him under the lens of our own ideals, we distract ourselves and others not only from the who of Jesus, but also 
the why. When the shifting of our opinions causes a shift in how we see Jesus, we need to run back to the Gospels and reconsider what he wants us to know about him. Because if Jesus is only your mascot, then he can't be your savior. And if he's only your sidekick, he can't be the hero that you need. What's more, if he's only a teacher, then his teachings are lies. Because what needs to be made perfectly clear is that Jesus never claimed to be a mere man. He claimed to be much more than that, more than a teacher and more than the reincarnation of a long dead prophet. No, Jesus claimed to be nothing less than the Son of God. The author C.S. Lewis tells us that this leaves us with three options, that either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. That's what we're left with. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of breaking all that down right now, but I don't think all of you are sitting here today because you think that Jesus is a con man or a crackpot. No, we gather here and we gather around the word because we believe that Jesus is telling the truth when he tells us that he is the Christ. Which brings us directly into Jesus' second question. But you, who do you say I am? And now the heat's turned up a little bit, whereas before the disciples had no wrong answers to give, now they really can't give the wrong answer. When Jesus says, but you, he's setting the disciples apart from the swirling rumors and the faulty answers that they've already heard and that they've already given. He's conditioning them to understand that as disciples, they're in a much different position than most other people. And through this text, he speaks to us to show us that as Christians, our answers to this question ought to be different from what the world is saying. Well, Peter, never one to disappoint, pops up and gives him the answer he's looking to hear. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's two things. One, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior, the one that, that the Old Testament people have been waiting generations and generations for, and the Son of God, who exists in eternity outside of time as God and yet was born into time as the God-man. And at last, Jesus' point is made. I can't read through this section without imagining the smile breaking across Jesus' face as he hears Peter confess what he's been waiting to hear. And you know that he's happy to hear it because his response isn't a simple correct or a, even a congratulatory you got it because his response to Peter is pure blessing. A blessing that says yes far more than that one word ever could convey. In fact, Jesus responds to Peter, yes and. Because he wants them, both Peter and the disciples to know that their answer to that question has just as much to do with them as it has to do with Jesus. And just as Jesus' request for a confession is spoken to us, Peter's response is also spoken for us. And what's more, Jesus' blessing is also spoken about us. This whole scene is a reflection of the relationship between God and man. Peter calls Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus, in return, calls him Rock, Peter, the Rock Man, and 
the son of Jonah. When the son of God calls Peter the son of Jonah, he acknowledges that Peter comes from sinful flesh and blood, something that Peter is going to prove time and time again before Jesus hits the cross. He comes from sinful flesh and blood, and yet Jesus responds as if to say, Peter, you didn't get this, this information from your dad. You got it from mine. And in the same way, when we make this confession, Jesus responds to us as if to say, Blessed are you, Jackson, son of Lance, and blessed are you, Addison, daughter of Pastor Bauer, because you have that God-given faith. Our parents and teachers and pastors can give us all this information. They can fill our heads with this knowledge. But when it comes down to it, it's a miracle that we believe it. Jesus also tells us that this confession makes us the church. And why? Because the church makes this confession. In fact, Jesus says that the church is built on this confession. I said that Jesus was a complex person. That's true. We're also very complex people. We have vastly different experiences just within this one room, different stories to tell. We've got likes and dislikes, reasons for those likes and dislikes, and reasons for those reasons. The ways in which we diverge from one another personally are so numerous, and yet if we confess together that Jesus is Lord, we are unified in that confession. Because even though we remain complex people, all our complexities bow down to Christ. You may be a rich person, but you're, Christ you're a Christian before you're a rich person. You may be poor, but your faith defines you far more than your poverty ever could. You may be brilliant or beautiful or athletic, but your brains and your brawn and your beauty ultimately bow down to Christ. That's the way it has to be. And some may, some may find that restrictive or repressive, but tell me what other identity can you have that's going to last? Your money will burn. Your beauty will fade. Your body will break down and ultimately whatever scraps of that identity you have left at the end will be swept away in death. That does not last. But the faith of a child is the same faith that her grandfather has. The confession that you make today is the same confession that is being made by the saints in heaven for all eternity. That lasts. I also think that when you begin to see this confession as the basis of your faith, all the obstacles to being a quote-unquote good Christian begin to fall away. And I don't say that to imply that being a Christian is going to be easy. I'd be a liar and a lunatic to tell you that, and Jesus himself shoots that idea down just a few verses later. But what does become obvious is that hell and its gates are not held at bay by how much doctrine you know, and death is not defeated by how many Bible stories you've read. Now, what makes a Christian is the knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's telling us the truth. Without that one confession, without that one truth, the rest is meaningless. But if it is true, then our life of sin is covered up in Jesus' life. Our debt of sin is paid up in Jesus' death, and the death that we die is swallowed up in Jesus' resurrection. And neither sin 
nor Satan, nor hell, nor the guiltiest conscience can take that away from us. Finally, Jesus, at the end of all this, makes kind of a startling, he says something kind of startling. He makes a total 180 and warns his disciples in no uncertain terms that they're not to let this news get out. And maybe that rubs us the wrong way. It hits our ears a little bit strangely because this is the same Jesus who tells us to go and make disciples of every nation, right? This, this is him. So what's up? Now remember, Jesus is about to head into the hornet's nest. The hornets are already riled up and they're going to sting him because that's just what hornets do. But if Jesus goes ahead and says, I'm the Christ and kicks the nest, nobody's going to take pity on him when he gets stung. Jesus isn't trying to harvest pity. That's not what he came to do. But remember, he's also not somebody to say things directly until the time is right. So in the meantime, he's going to keep all this under wraps, which brings us to the question, could he be a liar? I don't think con men generally give up their lives for their cons. They, they live for wealth. They don't die for glory. But at the same time, it, it's not out of the question. One might be willing to, to do that. Could he be a lunatic then? Well, it, generally, lunatics aren't as lucid as Jesus. They don't make as much sense as he did. They don't rile up their enemies as, as deftly as Jesus did. And yet again, it's not impossible. So could he be the Christ? If you can't take him at his word, then look to his resurrection. Because that is something that no liar or lunatic could ever do. And yet Jesus did it. He knew, and he knew that, that showing the people that he was Christ would be far more powerful than telling them. He knew that it would sink in deeper. He knew that it would be all the more real if he didn't have to say it, if he could just show it. And now hell and its gates have been overcome by him, by his dying and rising, and so the church never will be. That sight was seen. Those glories witnessed and written down so that the truth about Jesus may be revealed to you just as it was revealed to Peter. And so that with Peter, we can confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen.